This is the EWN Podcast Network. Do you know how often identity theft occurs? Every two seconds, affecting even children. The great news is that you and your loved ones don't have to become the next victim. In the Cyber Mindful with Sandra podcast, we'll explore together simple practices that increase the cyber safety of you, your family, and your business. I'm your host, Sandra Esto, and I believe the key to protecting yourself from hackers, scammers, and cyber monsters is rooted in being fully present, both online and offline. This podcast is a conversation among friends. I'm delighted that you are choosing to take charge of your cyber safety because you deserve to have peace of mind online and protect what matters most to you. So let's do this together. Welcome to another episode of Cyber Mindful with Sandra. I am so delightful to have you listening to our podcast and to bring an amazing array of guests. You know, the, 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 the thing about the person that is going to be with joining us, you're not going to believe that the breadth of careers. I mean, if you want to do something, you name it, Patrick probably has done it. And I would love to talk about all of that. So welcome. Patrick, and let me give you a little bit about Patrick Mosher and who is he? He is an author, a speaker, advisor, consultant, coach, mentor, teacher, husband, father, and granddaddy. And I love that one because I'm, as a grandma, um, I love that part. Definitely loving, loving having kids and, and grandkids around. Mm-hmm. Now, but that's not all that Patrick is. Patrick has, an, like I said, a diverse, very, very diverse profile or, or, or career and experience. And I want to talk about all of it. I know we always enjoy our conversation and we mix in here a little bit of technology and, and we'll talk about how this all makes sense in the world with Patrick. So Patrick, welcome to our show. Thank you, Sandra. So glad to be here. And uh, what a dance this is going to be. Yes. Speaking about dances. So, I mean, let me first, okay, let's hear your story. That's how we always start. Mm. Tell us about you and how did you begin, you know, your life and what's, what's important for Patrick? Okay. That's only going to take about two and a half hours, Sandra. So let me try to <laughs> squeeze that into a chewable piece for your audience group. So. Uh, let's start here. Um, I was a, a BS, uh, Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering. So I got my degree in chemical, chemical engineering. And, but, but more importantly, I was a co-op student. So mm-hmm. I have a five-year engineering degree. But when I went to do my co-op work, um, it was school, work, school, work. I would, I would go to work, give all my money back to my alma mater, Purdue, and then I would go work again. So that's how that worked. But one of the things that I noticed early on in that engineering career was how people screwed up perfectly good decisions. Mm. I noticed how um, you would tee up a decision as an engineer and it was the right decision. And then there was option B, which was twice the price, uh, half the requirements, but it was sexy. 
It was a sexy solution. So management would go like, oh, we need to do that. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. but that's the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. And so with that, the very first free elective I took uh, going through my bachelor's degree was persuasion. Persuasion, okay. And I wanted to learn persuasion. I wanted to learn why and how people screwed up perfectly good decisions. And so I was going to take this persuasion class like I was taking organic chemistry. I'd learn it and understand it, memorize the stuff, and then I would perfectly understand persuasion, how people get influenced by things. But clearly that's not how that worked. And so, uh, so I just love this thing. Now, throw an unsolvable problem in front of an engineering brain. And that engineering brain is going to throw themselves at that unsolvable problem like a rock. And I, and so for me, I kind of look at my career as 40 years of trying to solve, trying to crack the code of how to help people make good decisions and avoid screwing them up. So that's now, I love that concept, Patrick. So mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt you no, right go. there. No, I, I was just... You know, speaking about good decisions or, or, or how, you know, what was the most difficult or ma- more aha mo- or the aha moment that you have when you went to that class, when you discovered mm. the power of persuasion? What was that thing that was like, oh my God, this happened and now <laughs> I so, understand it. Tell me one. So great question. So, you know, you take this persuasion class and, and uh-huh. I, this is a great example of it is, um, there's a section, whenever you take a persuasion class, they'll talk about nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. And taking that class, and if, if you play poker, you look for tells, right? That somebody has a good hand or a bad hand. Mm-hmm. And so part of that was taking this class. It was like, oh, you start, you start looking at nonverbal communication as tells, as reads on people. Mm-hmm. But so, so then... If you cross your legs towards someone, it means you're attracted to them. There's research on that. There's the research on, you know, how people tell if you're lying, if you look up and Mm -hmm. to the left, you know, or Mm -hmm. up and to the right or look down, you know, those mean something. What I learned in there, the aha moment in that, Sandra, is they mean something when they mean something. Okay. Don't when they don't. And so, <laughs> okay, so the reads, please. Right. Well, well, these reads aren't a hundred percent. It's not a, like a 1.0 correlation. It's like, you have to be, you have to be able to really be good at discerning when it means something. Yeah. You know, so looking it's up, not up a and, science, right? It, it is a science, but it's not a 1.0 correlation. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's correlated, but it's not always true. I could look up and to the left, to my left, because I'm thinking of an answer and I'm accessing a part of my brain. That could absolutely be true. Neuroscience proves that to be true. Yeah. I could be looking up and to my left because there's an interesting thing off this camera shot that I'm looking at as a picture over here. And that could be what that is. And it has nothing to do with me trying to access that part of my brain. You just, yeah, so you true. have to be able to read those things and discern them. So what I found yeah. about the, the big aha moment in persuasion was um, it's not all left brain, it's right brain. Mm. And so there's a balance of right brain, left brain. When you, when you look at these things, it's, it's left brain logical, but also right brain creative. And, oh, that just filled my soul. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And I really want to figure this stuff out more. So that was probably the aha is really looking at the nonverbal communication and understanding that it's, it's not a, a logical, it's not a, it's not a hundred percent logical science. Now, 
that decision, I guess, right there. So you were a chemical engineer. Yep. You went to this persuasion class. Is that the reason that your first master's degree is in organizational communication or that organization is communication? Absolutely correct. And, and talk about that. When, when, I, when I teach, I teach at my alma mater, Purdue, uh, some students, and I like to tell them, you know, because I, te- I, I talk to a lot of engineering students. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, you have this great career. You d- went from engineering to communication. I was like, imagine what that conversation was like with my dad. <laughs> no, tell, I, tell us i want to oh, know <laughs> well, now, now so, so that's interesting because my mom and dad cared mostly about education i mean that was okay one of the two values that they had um you know of they wanted a, a safe home and, and a high education for their kids so so they didn't care mm-hmm. you know of what what my master's degree was in however the anxiety in my head was so huge to tell my dad, who was a credit manager, he was a very, you know, oh, and so I'm sure I built, I built that up so huge of like, they're going to hate this, they're going to hate this. And then I was like, I'm going to do this thing. And they're like, okay. <laughs> Sometimes the stories we tell ourselves, right? Right. Those are so much bigger than the actual story turns out to be so many times. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I did that master's degree in communication and that was great. And, uh, but, but for me that the liberal arts was probably my most valued degree of the three, but mm-hmm. it wasn't applied enough. That's why I went into the business school and did my PhD work in organization behavior. Cause I wanted to be able to take that idea of persuasion and take it back into the corporate workplace. I wanted to study the big companies. And so, okay. uh, so I did that PhD work three years, did not pass. I passed prelims, but it, and completed all the co- coursework, but I left without a, without my dissertation. So I'm PhD, ABD. They gave me an MSHR, Master of Science in Human Resources, as kind of a, a, a parting prize. Oh, I see. I didn't know that. That, that mm-hmm. was, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I was like, I've done all this coursework, but I was leaving. Um, second baby came along and somebody had to mm-hmm. make money. So yeah. it was like, one of us is going to leave. And I, I said, well, I'll leave. And they said, you know what? You've done all the requirements for this master's degree. We'll give this to you um, as okay. you go. But please come back and finish the PhD, which I never did. Will you ever do it? No. No? No. <laughs> when, well, um, no, yes and no. So um, I, went, I went into consulting. And again, okay. this is totally, there's a through line here that makes sense. Even though you look at how weird and diverse my background is, this through line is consistent. It makes sense. What better way to study human decision-making than in consulting? Because mm-hmm. um, you're thrown in project to project, different group of people, di- different configurations. I still yeah. consider myself a student of decision-making 40 years later. I'm still learning. Mm. Um, yes. So, so that, was, that was huge for me to, to leave that. But no, I didn't ever, um, when, when I went into consulting, um, they don't value a PhD at least no. uh, when I joined. And so it was, there was no reason to go back. Although right now I'm going back, I'm, I'm doing a lot of philanthropic work with my alma mater. And um, yes. one of the things that came up as a conversation is some sort of honorary PhD. And I'm like, oh, I have that. But that's, <laughs> that wouldn't be like doing the work for us just because I'm giving back in, in significant ways. Okay. Oh, I, that, that is beautiful, Patrick. I, mm. I love that. Now, when you did consulting, I know we talk about there were projects that related to technology, probably. Mm. So tell, 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 talk to me about that because mm. 
our listeners, some of them are into technology, some of them are not into technology at all. So, um, you know, what, what was the most technical challenge you mm. faced and what was your role or what did you do as mm. a consultant? Oh, that's good. Good question. So um, I, I can say I worked for Accenture, which is one of the mm -hmm. big consulting companies in the world. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a technology company. They implement mm -hmm. big, you know, technologies in, in the world. And so I'd say what was interesting is that I joined in the change management group. And 40 years ago, it's 40 years ago. Oh my gosh. Uh, 40 years ago, change management was primarily communication. And it was primarily people who had bachelor's degrees in communication. Hmm. Well, my background, I, I looked at change management as a science, not an art. Yeah. And so I was looking at, okay, they're paying me to, to help them. When, when I think about change management, they're paying me to create a predictable outcome for their decisions. Mm -hmm. And that means, and, and so how I looked, I always looked at that is you look at the people as unit operations in a plant, that sounds really weird, but But if you take a group of people like a steering committee, mm -hmm. I looked at each of those people as, as an operation in a plant and each of them um, take information in and they process that differently and then mm -hmm. they collaborate in the middle. And then what they're looking for is a predictable outcome, a decision mm -hmm. that they can make about choosing a technology, choosing to uh, launch a new company, choosing to acquire a company. So my job was to look at that and say, I'm, I'm going to work with you for these few months and we're going to have a predictable outcome. Just mm -hmm. like I would do if I was an engineer working in a plant. Mm -hmm. So having said that, um, with, within uh, Accenture, so many, most all the projects at the time were all technology-based. They were all uh, implementing, uh, this is before 1999, so Y2K was a big deal. And mm -hmm. so there was a lot of um, ERP, the Enterprise Resource Planning Projects, the SAPs and all that was getting put in. So the, the, the software was getting bigger and bigger and more complex. Mm -hmm. And also, so, so that would be the technical part of implementation. The, the people side of that is, um, as you get the more complex technologies, and if we can talk about generative AI today, that'd be awesome. But as the technologies mm -hmm. get even more complex, the people... Yep decision-making gets just as complex. Mm -hmm. And then, um, then the people capabilities start breaking down and the decisions start um, getting more, more difficult to make because there's so much information to deal with. Um, let me give you an example of, of one of those, if that's helpful. Um, so many times companies implement a technology to improve reporting. Okay. So, so we'll get better reports. And so they would say, but you need to train on the reports. And I'm like, you don't want me to train on the reports because training on the reports is just teaching what's on the report. Mm -hmm. What you're trying to do is you actually want your people to make different decisions based on the new information they're getting on the reports. Yep. That's a more complex training mm -hmm. than just training. Here's what these fields mean on this new report. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, that, I mean, when I'm thinking about what you're telling me, your, your background from all the persuasion, because of course, change is all about, you know, influencing mm. and, and how do you, you know, I heard that about 75% of the projects fail 
because of poor change. Yes. <laughs> so pretty much culture, you know, you can change an organization or you can change and implement a new system. Um, and that's the, you know, the reason why many things fail because we're not able to adapt to that change. Yes. Yes. And so, so let me give you an example of that. Is that okay? Yes. That give you an example. So one of the things mm -hmm. that we always talked about is the Valley of Despair. Okay. The Valley of Despair is, you know, you're, you invest in this new system and then day one, you turn it on. There's a go live date. Yeah. And then you go into the Valley. So what, put a, whatever metric you want on the Y axis, you know, it's like it's profitability margin, you know, what, whatever is most important. And you're implementing this new transformational technology to radically change how we do our business. Mm -hmm. and, and you want some metric to move. You want some major metric to move. Is this making mm -hmm. sense? Yep. So you turn this thing on and honestly, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. So, so, every, you know, so that metric drops like a rock, like this valley. Mm -hmm. And then you work through some things and then you come up the other side until you get, you, you hit the other side of this thing where now there's a new business rhythm and you can start mm -hmm. gathering, you can start realizing the benefits of this thing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's the thing I love about this. From a technology perspective, how much of that value of despair is due to technology? Well, you flip the switch on day one and stuff doesn't work. So the first mm -hmm. thing everybody does is look at the technology pieces and go like the yeah. interface is broken and stuff like that. How fast does it make, how long, how fast does it take? How, how long does it take to fix an interface that's broken? When, when, when there's something's broken on it, it takes like, like an hour or two. When you hit that valley of despair, the technology part, the, when you hit the go live part, the technology mm -hmm. can get fixed. The interface is broken and mm -hmm. the interface gets fixed in an hour or two. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. But the valley still happens after all these technology fixes are done. So the technology is working. The second mm -hmm. piece that drives you down that valley of despair is like, well, the process is broken. So the process flow doesn't work how we designed it in the technology. So now we have to change the process flow. Mm -hmm. And that takes as long as how many times you rep through that process. So that could be a couple of hours or even a couple of days. Mm -hmm. But how long does it take people to learn a new rhythm? Yeah. And I like to ask this question. It's like, so... How long, when you bring somebody, like, let's just say it's in the finance department, how long does it take a new finance person, even though they're experienced in finance, but they have to learn your ways of doing finance in your business? How long does that take? And the mm -hmm. answer I get is six to eight months. Okay, so this valley of despair, technology is managed, is, is measured in minutes, process yeah. is measured in hours or days. And the people component of transformational change is measured in months. Oh, so years, valley, probably. <laughs> right. This valley of despair, this metric that, that the executives wanted to get out of this thing is going to be held up by the people side, not the technology or the process side. And that's the now, beauty of change management is, is, is to help them shorten that gap and mm -hmm. the time it takes to get to the other side. Now, do you know, you mentioned a, 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 um, a bit earlier about AI and the times that mm. we're living now. How do mm. how that translate to today? So talk about that. Whew. Okay. This is another three-hour conversation, Saunders, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll do what I can to snap this into a little piece. 
So the thing about technology is, and I believe this to be true, is technology is amoral. There's nothing wrong with technology. There's nothing wrong with ChatGPT. Um, just like there was nothing wrong with the wheel when the guy said, let's roll this log up the hill on a wheel instead of like carrying it up on our back. And so the wheel's not a bad thing. And so, so, so generative AI is not a bad thing either. But the issue is, and, and I, I, I was uh, on the board for an analytics center for a while. And uh, what I said was data is like a loaded gun on the table. It's amoral. Analytics is the intention of the person who picks up the gun. Mm -hmm. I want to know the intention of the people that build the algorithms. Are people who build the algorithms for an AI, is their intention to control human behavior or to enrich the human experience? Yep. Those are two way different things. And I don't think people are clearly in their head going like, I want somebody to buy my stuff. So I'm going to use this algorithm because I want to control the human behavior to buy my stuff. Okay, I get that. But in the process, are we losing our humanity? Mm -hmm. So my view of generative AI, to, to wrap that piece up again in this short little piece, is um, how are we going to use generative AI or ChatGPT to make us more human? I don't want to be an extension of an algorithm because then I just become part of the tool. I don't want to be predictable at the end of an algorithm and buy the thing they want me to buy all the time because I'm just an extension of the algorithm and now I'm part of the tool and I become less human. Mm -hmm. I want to use AI to become more human. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a long conversation about what does that actually mean? I mean, yeah, it's beautiful. I, I love that because. I'm with you in intention. I mean, this is such an important word and we use it all the time in our podcast. I know at the end of the day, intention drives, you know, your, your decisions or, you know, what, what you do with your, with your life. And, you know, in my cybersecurity space, AI is an amazing tool that can help so much, but it can hurt so much mm -hmm. because it depends who's behind that. I guess, mm -hmm. you know, as the same person that may be able to use the tool to recognize behaviors in the data and anomalies and finding patterns that, you know, are suspicious. There is someone that is going to take that AI and develop the thing in the first place. So it's that race all the time, like to your point, I know um, the wheel isn't isn't the issue. It's who use it and how you use it. Mm -hmm. And I think the point for us is we cannot ignore the wheel. You cannot ignore the tires or the rounds or, because they will be around you everywhere. And mm -hmm. I think if we find a way to educate ourselves and to find that, you know, we might not like AI, but it's here. Mm -hmm. And how do we recognize and how do we go and become more human? Like you said, I love that part. So mm -hmm. in your mind, Patrick, how do we do that? What, what are the three things that you will recommend who's listening to us right now? And maybe someone that has not used AI or someone that is actually experiencing with AI or a very advanced AI person that just want to incorporate it into their you know, day-to-day oh. -day activities. What, is, what would you suggest? 
I wouldn't say three things. I think I'm going to get it to one. Okay. So, so in, in, it's a big one though. So, so okay. here's how I would look at this is I kind of think of AI as my brain in a remote location. Okay. The education, uh, and again, I'm working a lot at my alma mater at, at Purdue University. So we have a lot of conversations about this. And my belief is that the education process is, is off the mark right now. We're not training our young adults to be successful in the future because they have AI, because mm -hmm. what we teach is we teach, um, if you think about times tables, how did you learn times tables? Mm -hmm. Well, you memorize them. Mm -hmm. So what we teach is we teach knowledge acquisition yep. and knowledge, um, you know, knowledge access. So how do we, how, how do we, how do I retain it? Um, how do I access it and retain it? So yep. I memorize it so I can spit it back out. Okay. Um, having been an engineer, I don't need to teach the, 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 the formula for the second law of thermodynamics. I can look it up. So stop teaching that. We've taught mm -hmm. Newtonian, you know, mechanics the same way since Newton. I think we need to upgrade our system a little bit on this, right? Definitely. So, so, so part of this is, okay, so if it's over there, what do I need to teach somebody about the second law of thermodynamics? And my view of that is we need to teach it in a way that I understand how it works. Mm -hmm. I need to teach the boundary conditions. Yep. Um, I need to teach how to search AI to find the right stuff. I need to, I need to teach how to, um, how to assess um, the validity of the information I'm getting back. Mm -hmm. All those are valuable pieces in how to educate people, which we're not doing today, which I think is, is absolutely critical for our young adults today. Mm -hmm. So having said that, how do I, how do, I do this? And this, this is the magical piece in my mind. Instead of putting people in a classroom with a professor who's really smart, who's teaching stuff six levels below their talent, and bored to death with students who are taking notes that are bored to death. The better way to do this is what I call immersive learning experiences. Mm -hmm. Immersive learning experiences is where you put somebody in a context where they're learning immersively in this. And so what does that mean? Um, I can teach leadership concepts, mm -hmm. but isn't yep. it, wasn't it more interesting if I put them in a context where yeah. they have to show their leadership. Yeah. And how do they learn boundary conditions? They learn boundary conditions by failing. Yeah. They get into that immersive situation, they take a risk and they, and they fall, they, they, they fail at it. And now it's like, how much better to learn that than rather than getting a 96% on a test than to go yeah. like, I screwed up this squad of people that were doing in the woods trying to get through something and I messed it up and we ended up in the wrong place. I will remember that for the rest of my life. The 4% on the test, I won't remember. Absolutely. I am so in with you because I think experiential, immerse, it's the way that, you know, whether it's technology, whether it's AI, whether it's life, you know, the more you do that cybersecurity, and that's what I love to teach because that's what you remember, like you said. Love it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so in alignment in there. Now, how... I was just reading the news lately, uh, Australia or New Zealand and New Zealand, both countries, I think they were, um, banning, um, 
how to grade students. Mm -hmm. So, so they, they, the decision was, okay, we're going to change the education system and we're not going to do gradings against other students. So there is no more A, B, C, blah, blah. It's going to be only against yourself. It's how, mm -hmm. how you progress is, is, you know, what do you think of that concept of, yeah. you know, no grades, no competition, really measuring the performance based on your own abilities and your yes. own evolution. This is good. So in 1994, I think, when mm -hmm. I was at Accenture, I was a, 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 prof a professor at a local university here, Metro State, and they went that route. This is 30 <laughs> years ago where we did, mm -hmm. I think they called it narrative evaluation. And so you didn't okay. get grades. What you did is just you wrote you wrote a paragraph about the student okay. and, and uh -huh. what their performance was, giving them feedback and all that, which is great. So as with anything, Sandra, um, being a consultant, I, my answer will be, well, it depends. It depends, of course. <laughs> of course. It's both sides. So there's, there's a goodness to it and there's a danger in it. And I, I'd say that the goodness in it is that um, if instead of getting identifying my I, being my identity as I got a C or a D or something like that. Now I, I get to give feedback instead of focusing as a, as a teacher, instead of saying um, you can evaluate your performance because you got a 92. Now you're going to get feedback going like, here's what you could have done better. Here's some things you did really well. And now you get this more, more fuller uh, evaluation assessment that you can do more with when you mm -hmm. when you're trying to improve. So there's a great performance improvement component of of non you know graded um, assessment, which is great. The mm -hmm. danger of it is, and you said it is, it's a self evaluation. Now you're not being evalu evaluated on the contribution you're making compared to other people. That's the danger. Yeah. And so the danger of this is. Um, Uh, we're getting very, in our society right now, we're getting very self-focused because we're looking at self-actualization. We're looking at what makes me happy and you know, all that. What we're losing in all of that is the drive for innovation and the drive to, to contribute to humanity. Mm -hmm. um, my business's life purpose, the, my purpose of the business is to build a better world for future generations. Mm-hmm. When, when you say that, that has been true for every parent and grandparent you've had in human history. They're always trying to build a better world for future generations. Yep. What I feel right now is because we're so much focused on actualization and so mm -hmm. more fewer people in the world, this is controversial, fewer people in the world are fighting for um, life, food, safety, and those kind of things. In Western world, we've lifted that up pretty high. And so now we're up in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if, you're, if your community knows about that. Yep. And it's like, we're in the self-actualization box and we're kind mm -hmm. of spinning there. And it's like, no, 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 we need to keep evolving to the next level. And we don't know what that is. We, we, we as a society don't know what that looks like. So I think the danger in evaluations is evaluating against yourself. You get good performance approval, uh, improvement, uh, but what you don't get is the, the comparative analysis of, I could do better because I need to contribute more or better. Hmm. And so I think you might lose a little bit of the, the, um, the innovation in this too, that, that, um, 
there are better contributions than others in in some way. Hmm. Fantastic. I um I want to switch gears a little bit because I think that I mean that I I love the the analysis and and I love that um point of view. Now switching gears a little bit is how did you become a dancer? Huh. Because I, I, you know, and I'm going to tie this to the, what you were just talking before, because it, it, you know, actualization, you were talking about that and how that it's always, you know, you're looking to improve yourself. You're looking to do your next level. Now you are an engineer, you went to the human side, communication side, and, and that it's, it's a path. That is not in alignment, probably. <laughs> it's so much. There is alignment, probably. But it's not the same path of art. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you choose that? And what what, what in your actualization or what in your self-development called you to go to choreography and dancing and, and okay. talk about that? So good. All right. So, so this is, I will tie it back to what we just talked about, too, in terms of generative AI. So, yeah. So, a gazillion years ago, 40 plus years ago, um, every engineer at my school, my university, you had to take one PE credit, one physical education credit. Okay. And so I remember I was waiting in line. I, you know, back those, we didn't have computers. So you're waiting in line to turn in your form. Right. And I remember I was like four people back and I still hadn't decided on my physical education credit. And I'm looking at that and I'm going like, <laughs> so back in the day, um, uh, it's on the tail end of the Vietnam War. Okay. So uh, I didn't want to mark down anything in martial arts because I didn't want anything on my record that said I could fight. Ah, okay. And then all my friends were taking volleyball or, or soccer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, oh, so boring. I don't want to do that either. And I remember four <laughs> people back, I checked a box. Then I handed in uh, my my you know my request for schedule, and every day for days after that, do you ever have buyer's remorse? <laughs> yes. Right. You know, of you course, buy something you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Well, I should have done, done that. that. Yeah, exactly. I did that with that credit. I was like, oh, why did I sign up? And so I I called the university and I tried to talk to somebody and I couldn't get in everything. And finally, I just gave up. The box I checked was ballet one. Okay. And so I was like, why, why did I do that? But there wasn't other options. It wasn't any of the other things. That was the only thing left on the list. So I checked ballet one. So I walked in. So then the next semester I walk in and I'm walking into ballet one and I'm the only guy. Okay. So I'm the only guy in ballet one, which is hugely intimidating. And so then I walk in and then, and then the professor walks in Everybody do your introductions. So the introductions begin something like this. I've only had five years of ballet, so I decided to take ballet one. Oh, you know what? <laughs> I just did my recital um, of ballet, but I'm a little rusty because that was a year and a half ago. So I decided to take ballet one. And that just went everybody around. And I'm just going like, not only am I the only guy, but I'm like, I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> and I, I've never taken ballet. Okay. Now, having said that, I got surrounded <laughs> with love and compassion. They're like, 
Oh, that's so cute. You're so good. Oh, that, you know, so I got surrounded by all this beautiful feminine energy of being very uh-huh. invited into the space. So I took this ballet one and ballet one is so disciplined. It's a lot like chemical engineering. So I saw a lot of similarities between two, between the two. One's a, a, yeah. a um, mental discipline. The other one's a bodily discipline, but it was very similar. At the end uh-huh. of ballet one, the professor pulls me aside and says, do you know, you have a natural talent. You should take ballet two. <laughs> wow. Okay. Amazing. Now I'm on my time, right? I'm on my time. This isn't a required course. And I was like, I'll take ballet two just because it was kind of fun. So I took ballet two and now we're learning more advanced stuff and all that. So I take ballet two. At the end of ballet two, the professor pulls me aside. You really do have a natural talent. You should audition for the Purdue Repertory Dance Company. And I was like, sure, why not? So I took Purdue, I I auditioned, made the company, and I danced with that company for five years through my graduate program. Wow. And and so it was a lot of fun. And and, uh, when I, at the end, I was probably the second best male dancer in the company. And the number one, three, and four all went professional dance. Wow. I could have been a contender. I could have made it work. But but I decided that I wanted to go on and do um, uh, go into my my master's degree and PhD work instead of going yeah. that way. But I I could have done a professional dance uh, a career as well. But I decided not to. Now having said that, with the story you've heard before, what better way to turn on the right side of your brain than yeah. putting it through your body? And so I got to dance. I got to choreograph with this group, and I learned a lot about the human performance. But also I learned a lot about um, diversity and, and cultural mm. acceptance, because it was a whole different part of the campus than I was on before. And all yeah. these people were different kinds of people. And I love that. So I love people. And so that was, uh, that also fed that pack, you know, part of me. So people ask today just to finish this piece is so, okay. So that was great today. I'm on the board for dance and the performing arts in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And so where I live, so that would have never happened if I hadn't checked the box Yep. Went to take ballet one, not knowing what I was doing. Okay. Now to bring this back to generative AI, my view, that decision was very human. Yeah. There was no algorithm on the planet that could have predicted that I checked the box to take ballet one, being a chemical engineering student. So to yep. me, there's a little bit of what makes us more human are our left turns those things that the algorithms can't predict, those things yeah. that we get, we get that human experience that opens up another whole portal in our life that the algorithm never could have predicted from our past behavior or other people's past behaviors from profiling you. That's what's going to make us more human. Okay. I love it. Rainbow. Beautiful, beautiful set, Patrick. Now I need to ask you because I know uh, this is how we met. You have been participating in the Lakota ceremonies. Mm. And I, I, I don't want to, I know for very few minutes to close, I need to ask you two questions. I ask everyone. So, okay. but I, can you speak a little bit about, you know, what you do in the Pine Ridge Reservation? How, mm. how is your work and, and what are you doing today in your mm. philanthropic work? And, and tell us, Paul. Patrick. Yeah. Great question. Um, again, that's a three hour answer. I'm going to try to smush <laughs> it into 38 seconds. Um, so, so what I'd say is 
I participate in, in Lakota ceremonies on Pine Ridge Reservation, and I'll be doing it again in two weeks. I'm going to go back out there. One of the things that I love about that is that there's an Aboriginal way of decision-making. Again, I'm a student of decision-making, and the Aboriginal ways of making decisions are radically different than our Western society. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lakota's culture is, is matriarchal, so a lot of the decisions are very collaborative. And so in some ways, I believe that these Aboriginal cultures are, way, are to study those and to bring them back into the way we do things. Um, it has radically, I've, I've participated in ceremonies out there for 30 years. It radically changed how I did my consulting. But even today, it's changing how we, we make decisions. And I, I'm, I'm trying to uh, mine the gold from that and bring that back and gift that back to our Western mm. culture. So that there's, because I think that's what's Beautiful. emerging in our world right now is a more collaborative decision-making models. And so part of that is like learning from our Aboriginal cultures to do that. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, one thing that's out there. The second piece out there, a part of that decision-making is how they treat elders. The, mm-hmm. the Aboriginal societies treat elders with such respect. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I learned out there is that when, when grandpa tells the story for the sixth time, you see people leaning in, they're listening. Mm. And Beautiful. in our society, in the Western culture, you see people going like, Grandpa, we've heard the story six times. No, we don't need to hear that again. The reason why they're leaning in, in Aboriginal cultures, is because it's an oral tradition. Mm. And in a sense, if Grandpa's telling the story for the sixth time, it's because we made him do it, because we don't have the story in our bodies yet. And so I'm listening in, I'm listening to all the word inflections. I'm watching how he uses his hands. I'm, u- I'm, I'm trying yeah. to look at the body movements, really trying to get the whole story. So, so th- there's a leaning into that. There's a respect for that wisdom. And again, I think that's sorely needed in our, our culture today of, mm. of mining the wisdom that's in our world right now that, that we're wasting. So that's yeah, I, two reasons why I'm going back out there as I have for so many years. It. I'm a student. You know, that's so in, so interesting topic that we can do a whole episode just to speak about how, how we can improve our communication with our seniors, especially in my mm. field. There is so much that happens and mm. how can we be more giving? How can we be more understanding of, you know, the, their journey and be part of that? Of that conversation, I, I would just, I love it. So what you're doing is just so amazing, Patrick, and mm. bringing that into into our side. I don't know, it's not a side, but I, I don't know how to express it. But it's just yeah. so important that what you you're bringing. So I would love to talk more about that. Let's do it. Yes. Now I ask everyone that comes to the show two questions. Number one okay. is, what is your favorite piece piece of technology? What did you like the most about what do technology? I like? Oh, what's my uh, hardware, software, or it doesn't matter. Anything. Do, do, do decide. I, I love, because of my age, I think um, I lived in a, in a world without smartphones. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to say smartphone. And, and, uh-huh. and that's going to be inclusive of a lot of stuff. But the fact that, you know, I can have um, so much of my brain 
like in this little space here, again, yeah. it makes me more, it, it allows me to be more human. So I don't have to remember stuff. Yeah. And so if that, if I can put stuff over there so that I can be more present with you today, yeah. um, I love that. And so, so I think, I think smartphones is a way to store stuff so we can exchange and interact more authentically with each other. Hmm. Um, so I'd say that's, that's a favorite of mine, the smartphone. So it, it frees me up. And then I, just as we're sitting here, I love these uh, video conferencing. Mm-hmm. In the last three years, I have connected with more people. People are like, I'm so sick of Teams. I'm so sick of Zoom. I'm so sick of the, and I'm like, I love it. <laughs> I'm talking to people all over the world. Yeah. But part of, again, it goes to how are we using these technologies to, yeah. to enrich the human experience? And that's a choice that we all have is how am I using this to enrich my human experience? If you're doom scrolling or watching cat videos, okay, it might be a nice break, but in the end, how is it helping you become more human? And I, I, I love, I'll name two of them, smartphone and telecommunication, televideo conferencing. I love those. And, and I hope we do more of that, you know, advancement in those parts of our technology. Yes. Well, that, that is a perfect segue to the last question. And I right, know go. you're going to be amazing because I want you to take that phone, smartphone that you just showed me. And I want you to tell me three things you're grateful for that phone. Mm, three things that I'm grateful for. Um, I am grateful on this phone is that I have access to 2,200 people that are in my, in my folders of, of people who I know. And so I'm grateful that this, this is like a golden, uh, oh, I'm going to use a word that many of your people may not know. This is my Rolodex. <laughs> yes. This is, this, is, this is like, and it's so easy to access. And then what's right next to that is that their phone numbers there. And I just punch it. And so <laughs> I'm so grateful. Like, and all of a sudden, Sandra, how are you doing? And you're like, I didn't know we were talking. I was like, I didn't either, but now we are. And you're like, okay, what are we doing? So I love that, that this is like immediate access to people. I so love, I love that about, about this. So that's one thing I love about the phone. Um, I also love that um, within this little box, um, the innovations continue. So, mm. so this is, this is um, just a, a springboard for what it's going to look like in years to come. So I love that, that this is not just frozen in time, but it's also evolving. And mm-hmm. I'm big on, on evolution of how yeah. are we evolving our humanity and, and things. And so technology is evolving with us right now. So I love yeah. that as a second piece about the evolution that's right in my hands. Yeah, um, I, I'm super grateful for that because I think when you, when you start seeing that piece of technology and be grateful for where it's taking you, I mean, mm. you have a different appreciation. You have a different set of mindset about that. You care about it. You you mm. protect it. You know, you do the things that are right for that technology to be serving you in the best way it can. So, thank you yeah. for that. And what will be the last thing you're grateful for? Oh, you're gonna you're gonna love this. I love this because I can put it down. Nobody has said that. Wow. Nobody has ever, ever, ever that I asked this question said that, Patrick. Mm. So Nobody. Good. So good. So good. 
Yes. It's a choice. It's a choice. And and the smartphone still uh, gives me the choice to put it down. And that's, again, that's what makes us more human. Once you start embedding the chips in my body, ah, now I'm not, you know, maybe it's not allowing me to make the choices so much. Yeah. But I can put it down. And, and that's, wow. and that's uh, the choice, decision-making. Again, remember, this is my, this is my gig is decision-making mm-hmm. is, is that's what makes us human. That's I what makes it. us make mistakes and learn. That's love so powerful it. for us. So I love the fact that I can put it down. It's the third piece. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. It's so in alignment with what we do too. And this beautiful way to, to capture, to end this episode. And if you're listening to us, just know you have a choice. And it's your choice how you use it, whatever it is, whether it's your computer, your phone, your social media, you know, you can choose. And you can decide how, you know, how you run your life digitally. Beautiful. So thank you so much, Patrick. It's such an amazing pleasure having you in the show. And I will see you next time. We will have all the contact information for Patrick in the show episode. So you know how to contact him if you want to connect. And learn more about the amazing work that Patrick does. So definitely we'll, we'll, we'll do that. So thank you so much again. Thank you, Sandra. I love being here. And thank you all for listening to this, this podcast. It's great. Okay. Well, see you next time in Cyber Mindful with Sandra. Bye for now. Ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening. I'm so grateful for you today. So if you enjoyed this episode, please tag me in social media at way to protect Again, it's way number two, protect. And let me know if this episode has helped you. I would love to hear from you. And if you like to know more about me, check out my resources at my website, sandraestock.com. And remember, be intentional, be aware, and be mindful. Be I am. Be I am now.